Tall, skinny palm trees stretching up to a violet sky. Their arching plumage listlessly swaying in the trade winds. My wife and I resting on a piece of sun-bleached driftwood under a canopy of large, umbriferous palm fronds. Behind us, a lush, verdant blanket of tropical flora covers the lazy dragon, his mountainous body curving to form what stretched out beyond us, Hanalei Bay. In my early endeavorings to trod the tropical footsteps of my literary forebears, I would hear about a random place in a song or book and decide, well, that's where I want to go. Hanalei was one of those very first places. It seemed like a far-off dream then. Jamaica, Mexico, and the circumference of Florida were easier to accomplish. Then I met a crazy lady who taught me dreams are simply goals we haven't reached yet. I married that lady, and when we chose Hawaii for our honeymoon destination, she immediately insisted on the island of Kauai so we could visit Hanalei Bay. Let me tell you, it was better than a dream. As a writer, I would love to spend the following page elucidating in masturbatory language regarding the level of emotion I felt on the beach that day, of which a stop at Tiki and Niki surely aided. But I won't do that to you folks. I'll just say, after a hike through the jungle, kayaking through lush tropical valleys and much shore-gazing, and ending the nights staring up at the most beautiful, colorful, starriest sky I've ever experienced, I understand why Hawaii remains a place of exotica and magic. Oh, and we drank tropical drinks. Now, we chose Kauai, the Garden Isle, not for the bars and restaurants, as we so often do, but for the beauty of the island. Of course, the tiki head in me would love to sip around Waikiki and dine in Honolulu, but I've come to realize in my scant time in this realm that chasing the past oft leaves us stuck in the present. Drinking a daiquiri beside the Hemingway statue at La Florida and a Mai Tai at Trader Vic's, those are memories I will forever cherish. But in order to move forward and create anew, we sometimes have to nudge ourselves out of our comfort zones. Kauai was that trip for us, and it was amazing. Now, that's not to say we didn't luck into some incredible food and drink. Don't even get me started on the sushi in Hawaii. And, of course, I've raved before about how wonderful a tiki bar tiki aniki is. Pretty high on my top three list. But, as uniquely Hawaiian as tiki aniki is, the drink menu still borrows heavily from Beachcomber and Trader Vic Classics. What I was surprisingly impressed with was the quality of the other drinks around the island. I was kind of expecting tourist trap sugary mixes like you might find on a cruise ship or all-inclusive resort. But the fresh juices, good local rums, and pride and proficiency of the bartenders really impressed me. It makes sense. Hawaii's price tag is a bit bigger than the Caribbean, and elite guests expect elite quality. But also, when you have access to some of the best fruit in the world, we literally had to dodge falling mangoes. And people are coming for fruity drinks? Let them eat cake. Or, in this case, pineapple. You see, Hawaii has its own style of tiki that began as a sort of imitation of... itself? Hopefully this will make sense later. Today we're making one of my favorite tiki cocktails that really doesn't have much of an origin. So instead, let us take a brief journey through how tiki found its way home culminating in one of Hawaii's most opulent hotels and its namesake cocktail, the Royal Hawaiian. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony, and this is Pod Tiki.
Picture it. Spanish colonial architecture, European high fashion, and a whole lot of Jesus. Ah, the true Hawaii. Wait, what? Let's just say early 20th century Christian missionaries were very good at their job. In fact, the swivel-hipped, lay-laden ladies lounging lasciviously on lanais and titillating tropical tipples had been all but eradicated from pre-statehood Hawaii. All power late nights dancing around the kava bowl traded instead for Bible study and lessons in civilized culture. Look, I'm a card-carrying cradle Catholic, but I've always had a gripe with aggressive evangelizing. At any rate, with native culture diluted and teetotaling on the rise, Hawaii as a tropical tourist destination never stood a chance against the legacy of the Caribbean. Furthermore, travelers that did make it to the perceived exotic paradise were greeted by faux-opulent European-style hotels and the same cocktails available in mainland bars, themselves in a post-prohibition convalescence in which a crippled industry was struggling to rediscover itself. Before we go any further, I want to point out that Hawaiians did have native alcoholic beverages before the uh, quote-unquote civilized world came to town. The most popular of, it, of which was one that has found a new life in tiki culture, sorta. It's awa. Awa is a kind of tea made from kava root, said to have medicinal qualities. Uh, thought to have originally come to Hawaii from Tahiti, kava was initially used as fishing bait as it had a stunning effect, rendering the fish immobile. Of course, as we humans are wont to do, someone decided to see if you can catch a buzz from it leading to kava becoming a tool for religious ceremonies. Think ayahuasca. Truth be told, passing around the kava bowl doesn't seem too far from me lining up to drink from a chalice of wine every Sunday. What's made awa famous in pop culture, though, is its traditional method of preparation. In the early days, kava root was chewed up, mixed with saliva, and spit into a bowl, sometimes to be heated over a flame or other times to be passed around and simply enjoyed neat. Today, kava awa is still available, though the masticating is done by muddling the root into a powder and making it into a tea. Although, I'm sure if you ask a native Hawaiian, they'd be glad to spit in a Howley's drink. You know, for authenticity. Another native exotica intoxica is okolehau, a kind of moonshine made by distilling the Hawaiian tea plant. That's that purple leaf plant popular in a lot of tropical-themed gardens. In fact, I have one on my tiki patio right now. Okolehau has seen a bit of a resurgence among Polynesiacs as an ingredient in modern cocktails seeking that native Hawaiian edge. Unfortunately, by the 1940s, uh, early 1940s, both of these native spirits were long gone the way of the dodo. But tourists who heard stories of Errol Flynn and Ernest Hemingway cavorting about the Caribbean were, and were eager to spend those post-prohibition pre-World War II dollars expected Hawaii to be the new frontier of tropical playground. In the Caribbean, the ambiance matched the lore. Hotels catered to their tropical expectations. Beaches were strewn with tan bodies and the neon nightlife glowed under the Pleiades. Hawaii, on, their, on the other hand, was mostly colonized by Euro fashion. Polynesia, it seemed, needed some PR. So, what brought Exotic back to Exotica? In short, Don the Beachcomber. Don and Trader Vic's nascent genre of tiki exotica, practically predicated on perceived paradise, was all the rage across mainland USA. 
Looking back now, we lionize those men for creating something new out of all their mishmash travels and experiences, but when Tiki was young, the average person had no reference for faux exotic hyperbole. They thought the inside of a Trader Vic's was really how Polynesia looked. Now, Don made his way to Waikiki in 1948. The straw-covered A-frame huts he designed were unheard of even by native standards. His return to tribal seemingly reversed decades of missionary work, striving to, again, quote-unquote, civilize the natives. Don the Beachcombers was a pagan bar offering pagan drinks. In this, Hawaii finally had the cocktails to match the expectations. Though Don and Vic did manage to bring their unique styles to Hawaii, it was the Halehulane Hotel that was the first local spot to utilize Hawaiian themes. Tapa cloth, lava rock, native art, and Polynesian-style bungalows. They even boasted their own Halehulane cocktail, a mix of okolehau, lemon, orange, pineapple, grenadine, and bitters. Halehulane essentially took Polynesian pop back from the mainland. Not long after, Lyle Guslander opened the Coco Palms along the Waialua River in Kauai. Known as the Playground of the Kings, the Waialua River was an apropos location for a resort as it was once the ancient vacation spot for Hawaiian royalty. My wife and I actually kayaked the Waialua and hiked through a tropical jungle to a waterfall-fed lagoon where we spent the day swimming in with the ghost of royalty. All jokes aside, it is truly a magical place. One could understand the allure. Gus, as he was affectionately known, used the lush foliage of Kauai, along with thatched cottages and a number of native-inspired bars, to induce a sense of exotica that actually was, well, exotic. A cool side note about Coco Palms, due to the high number of native descendants working at the hotel, there were no tiki faces or totems on the grounds, as it was offensive to their local customs. But to placate the mainland visitors, bigger and wider chairs were installed in all the bars and restaurants to be more comfortable for the bigger and wider tourists not to make them feel self-conscious. Is it any wonder why they found us offensive? In a sad turn of events, the hotel was decimated in 1992 by Hurricane Aniki. We drove by the dilapidated skeletons of buildings on our visit to Kauai. Picking our guide's brain for an explanation, we were told that anyone who tries to purchase the property ends up in land disputes with local tribal government who will only allow the, the historic grounds to be renovated under strict guidelines. Meanwhile, over in Waikiki, establishments used the natural landscape of Oahu as backdrop for the frenzied influx of tourism. For all those people who think tiki bars can't have an outdoor area. Yet... It still fell on Don the Beachcomber and Trader Vic to inspire any kind of exotic drink. That is, until a mixologist known only as Danny at the Waikikeen's Papit Bar began substituting local ingredients into Don and Vic's classic recipes. Native um, fresh juices took the place of pre-made mixes, and brown sugar a stand-in for simple syrup. For more on this, check out Kevin Crossman's article, The De-Evolution of the Hawaiian Mai Tai, in issue 15 of Exotica Modern. Now, with the help of Elvis, who was a mainstay at Coco Palms, and those movies who fed Polynesian Pang for tropical, Hawaii was experiencing a boom in popularity that swept the entire nation on a road paved by tiki. For a time. 
Don and Vic eventually left Hawaii or went full tourist, leaving the drinks diluted into parodies of their former cocktail and descendants. Despite the efforts of locals like Danny, their absence left a tiki-shaped hole in Hawaiian drinking. Then came Harry Yee. When our old friend Conrad Hilton grew weary of the fading Caribbean vibes, he went in search of something new to shake his cockles. He found it in 1961, when he opened the Hilton Hawaiian Village. An existing hotel dating back to the 1920s, the Hawaiian Village in Waikiki was renovated with all the creature comforts indicative of a then-modern Hilton Hotel. Harry Yee was the head bartender at Hawaiian Village circa 1956. There he is credited as being the first bartender to use orchids and umbrellas as cocktail garnish. Now he claims this was out of necessity. You see, they used to place sticks of sugarcane in the drinks, but patrons would chew them up and leave them in the ashtrays, a sticky gross mess. Eliminating the sugarcane in place of orchids meant easier cleanup at the end of the day. For the full story on Harry Yee, check out our Blue Hawaii episode, link in the blog for this podcast. Harry Yee was indeed inventor of the Blue Hawaii cocktail, along with a plethora of others, like the Tropical Itch. He remarked how people would come in asking for Hawaiian drinks, and there weren't any true Hawaiian drinks at the time. So he created cocktails to suit the idea of what tourists coming to Waikiki imagined that Hawaiian drinks would be. As far as I've come across in my reading, it appears Harry Yee was Hawaii's first celebrity bartender. His style of blending, no pun intended, the native Hawaiian feel that tourists thought they wanted with the still tropical but often commercialized version of Hawaii that tourists actually wanted, granted him favor with patrons and management alike. Hey, if you can get away with using blue curacao and sweet and sour mix in your most famous cocktail and still be on the Mount Lushmore of Tiki, who am I to argue? A quick tangent regarding my thoughts on that last paragraph. I fall right in the middle of the tourist trap versus where locals go argument. Preferably, I like to stay in a tourist area and venture to local spots at my leisure knowing there's a safe home base to return to. I am not adverse to adventure at all. I've gone ziplining over a Cuban jungle with my passport and all my money strapped around my waist. But I've also been to tropical islands where, believe me, you don't want to go to the local spots. They're either unsafe, unwelcoming, or truthfully just a shithole. It's actually quite disheartening to realize that the beautiful landscapes of your mind's eye are, outside of manufactured perception, impoverished third world communities. Jamaica, Bahama, even parts of Hawaii. As a result of my travels, I must conclude that, in most places, the version they show tourists is more akin to the heyday of culture that place is known for than the reality beyond the veil. There are certain locales that are exempt from this. Cuba, for instance, is a place where visitors still stay among the people, eating, drinking, and sharing in the day-to-day -day lifestyles of locals, albeit on a tourist budget. Certain U.S. cities, like my beloved Orlando, suffer from the perception that there is no local scene at all, when in fact, the town is replete with native flair. Then there's places like Nashville, where we hang out at the same place as the tourists do, because every cool establishment in town has cashed in on that sweet, sweet bachelorette party fat cash. I guess what I'm saying is, there's nothing wrong with doing the touristy stuff or embellishing in a bit of tropical opulence, as long as you admit what it is and try to round it out with some local excursions. Sometimes the mainstream attractions are mainstream for a reason. 
Trust that the locals have curated the experience you want so you're not let down by the reality. Lyle Guslander, Danny, and Harry Yee, they knew what people wanted while endeavoring to give it to them in a way that maintained the high integrity of authentic Hawaii. Yet, amid this history, one hotel is prominently germane to today's story. The Royal Hawaiian. Boasting ornate Spanish-themed architecture and top-of-the-line luxury for Waikiki in 1927, the Royal Hawaiian was and still is thought of as one of the most lavish deluxe hotels in Hawaii. But it's not just another pretty hula face. During World War II, the property played host to U.S. troops as a military R&R retreat. It's easy to understand post-war expat culture when you go from fighting Nazis to wahinis and bikinis. Even the languages are diametrically opposed. Imagine getting yelled at in German one minute to being serenaded by an Hawaiian love song the next. The Pink Palace of the Pacific, as the Royal Hawaiian was nicknamed, also found its way into pop culture via appearances in movies and TV shows like Hawaii Five-O, Charlie's Angels, and more recently, Mad Men. Today, the Royal Hawaiian has earned its place among the historic hotels of America. Okay, that's all quite academic. Blah, blah, and history is great. But y'all know my speciality lies in cracking wise when I get to editorialize. So let's get to what we all came for. The Royal Hawaiian's eponymous cocktail. As mentioned way back in the beginning of this long-ass episode, the Royal Hawaiian drink doesn't have much of an origin. It's known to have been served simultaneously at both the Royal Hawaiian and Moana hotels in 1948. Now, dating back to 1901, the Moana was actually the first hotel in Waikiki, and another whose palatial decadence would make it look more at home to a Euro-trash aristocracy than uh, beachside barons of Oahu. Even Beach Bum Berry won't say for sure which hotel the drink originated in, but it seems obvious to me. It remains commonplace for establishments to offer a namesake signature cocktail, a titular tipple if you're nasty. Thus, it stands to reason the drink was named after the Royal Hawaiian. But, to do my due diligence, it is rumored that the Royal Hawaiian drink was created in 1920 and began its life as the Princess Kaiulani cocktail. I have not been able to corroborate this, but there was a property adjacent to the Moana named the Princess Kaiulani Hotel, which was later absorbed by the Moana. This would lead me to believe the drink may have begun as the signature drink of one hotel and later renamed to another to fit the sensibilities of an ever-changing tourist archetype. And why would a signature drink so blatantly jump hotels? Well, my swingin' hula pals, guess what? None of that matters because in 1948, when the drink appeared on both menus, the Royal Hawaiian and Moana hotels were owned by the same people. The Matson Line, a prominent shipping company based in Honolulu, owned a bunch of hotels in Hawaii in the early 20th century. Both properties sold to the Sheraton Hotel Group in the 1950s, and both hotels are still available for booking as part of Hawaii's luxury collection resorts. Ooh la la. But alas, as far as who created the drink and what they were thinking and why they used the ingredients they did, I fear that may be lost to time, leaving us only to speculate. As it turns out, I love speculating. It's like my favorite thing. So let's make a drink. 
And we know that Hawaiian drinking was born of Don the Beachcomber's tiki, and Don, having traversed the Caribbean learning all about different styles of rum, relied heavily on the spirit to create his rum rhapsodies. Today, Hawaii has begun to make a name for itself in the rum world, my favorite being Kohana Hawaiian Agricole, made from native-pressed cane juice. Over the course of a week in Kauai, I made friends with the hotel bartender while drinking them out of a bottle of Kohana. A vintage Hawaiian-style upscale bar with fine marble and linen. Easy music carried on a fragrant breeze out of the large open bay doors, over the lanai, and out to the garden. White light glinting off the bottles behind the polished wooden bar, while a barkeep in a white shirt wipes wine glasses. I would sit there sipping and taking it all in while my wife dressed for dinner. She'd walk up in a beautiful form-fitting floral dress and we'd make our way to a table. Sometimes inside the dining area, other times outside amid tall violet tea plants and broadleaf fan plum palms. The leaf pattern on some of the plants gave the flowing fishbowl impression that we were sitting on the bottom of the ocean. Okay, snap out of it, Tony. All that to say, despite Tropiki's penchant for rum, the Royal Hawaiian is one of those rare cases in which gin takes center stage. But don't get it twisted. There's plenty of Hawaiian influence in there, too. It's also one of those drinks that's utterly simplistic for how freaking good it is. It's kind of a daiquiri riff with gin and juice. One might say it's laid back. We start with gin. I know, I know. Two gin episodes in a row? I thought this was a tiki podcast. I promise we'll get back to rum next time. But I couldn't resist the perfect segue from spring into summer drinking that is going from the Negroni to the Royal Hawaiian. The perfect example of how a spirit can taste totally different when used alongside different ingredients. Now call me a 90s kid, but I usually reach for Bombay Sapphire for my gin. Beefeater works as well, seeing as how I generally prefer London dry style gins. I think it's a good balance of botanical and body. I want the juniper to be prevalent, but without tasting like potpourri. Now, it's no wonder this was served at some of the most luxurious bars on the island. Let's not forget how far gin has to travel to get to Hawaii. And we're talking 1950s travel. That stuff had to flow the Silk Road and then cross the Pacific. Therefore, why not pair it with only the finest native Hawaiian pineapple? Notwithstanding the giant conglomerate that Dole has become, the fact that they pretty much did... Uh, take a corporate takeover of the islands of Hawaii to make it a state, they do grow some of the best pineapples in the world. Look, I love me some Caribbean pineapple. It was hailed as a sign of fertility from the Yucatan through Cuba and out to the Wayward Isles. High society would rent pineapples to use as centerpieces at dinner parties. Fresh pina coladas in the Caribbean are like ambrosia from the gods. But let me tell you, never have I seen such a perfect golden pineapple as when shopping in Kauai. Unfortunately, it's all but impossible to find Hawaiian pineapples in most of the contiguous U.S. Those little cans of Dole, though they are 100% unsweetened juice, are actually from the Philippines, and the lion's share of whole pineapples in the supermarket are from Central America. The one I used for this episode was produced in Costa Rica and distributed by an Irish company. What gets me is that even though Hawaii is a state, and way closer, it's still cheaper to get fruit from Asia and Central America. Let me just say, corporations and banana republics are gross and evil, but I am fine with having to travel to exotic locations to sample local fare as long as everyone is afforded the same opportunities to do so. 
It's proven that travel broadens the mind and breeds cultural education. Yet, the powers that be make it so cost-exclusive. It's almost like they don't want the masses traveling. Hmm? And getting educated? Hmm? Anyway, dole cans are fine, but what's even better are the those fresh-pressed 100% only juices that a lot of markets are carrying now. They're a tad more expensive, but taste the most like fresh pineapple. Of course, you can squeeze your own pineapple juice. As I've stated in previous episodes, without the aid of expensive kitchen equipment, this is a long, arduous process, yielding little results for the effort. I tried a version of this drink with fresh-pressed pineapple juice, and honestly, it didn't really make it that much better. Obviously, the pineapple flavor was fresher and more organic, and still commingled nicely with the gin. It just doesn't seem that the risk is worth the reward. I'd go with the fresh-pressed store-bought stuff, usually in the juice aisle. Just watch the expiration date, because once you open it, since it has less preservatives, it will spoil quicker. As far as Orgette, I stand firm that I have not yet tasted a better one than Latitude 29 Formula Orgette. I feel like it's got the best almond flavor without being too sweet. The orange water and other ingredients balance perfectly. I'm not saying I've had them all, there's actually still a few on my list I want to try, but I tend to prefer a more traditional orgette. It should be made by almond, and it should not have alcohol in it. I'm talking to you, Chopper. Guys, there's already two and a half ounces of booze in a Mai Tai. Do we really need alcohol in the orgette too? I'm not trying to get blotto, that's what zombies are for. Anyway, I'm teasing, Chopper does make a hell of a Mai Tai. I have not attempted to make my own orgette yet either. It just seems like a hell of a lot of work to make a product that is available for purchase at a pretty high level already. Sometimes the risk-first reward on homemade is not worth it if it's not that much better. For example, I make my own syrups because I don't want high fructose corn syrup in my drink. That's worth the effort to me. Also, I have a very fickle palate. I don't drink the same things all the time. So I'm afraid if I put the time into making a batch of homemade orgat, it may go bad before I use it. If I buy some for $20 and I have to throw the last quarter bottle away, that sucks, but it still seems more worth it than all the effort that goes into slicing and roasting almonds, finding all the ingredients, and preparing it just right. Have you ever tried to slice an almond? Moving on. Our sour in this drink comes not from lime, but from lemon. It adds a brighter note and complements the pineapple nicely. Very summery. Always use fresh squeeze lime juice. The cost-benefit analysis is well worth it in this case. You might say, the juice is worth the squeeze. Sorry, I had to do it. And the recipe for the Royal Hawaiian is as follows. Half ounce fresh lemon juice, quarter ounce orgeat, one and a half ounces of pineapple juice, one and a half ounces of gin. Add all ingredients to a cocktail shaker, add ice, shake, and double strain into a coupe. Garnish with a pineapple frond. We should end up with a bright yellow golden liquid wearing a sheer layer of foam across the top. Wow. Of course this drink would have been served to high-flying Hawaiian clientele. It simply tastes regal and sophisticated. Now, we know pineapple activates more flavor receptors on the tongue than other fruits, and research shows that due to the way pineapple affects the proteins in your mouth, it's one of those foods that can change the way other things taste, making it perfect for mixology. The sweet spice of pineapple complements the botanical gin so well, they almost cancel each other out, creating a new tertiary flavor. 
Lemon adds a brightness while Orjat fills the profile out. It's almost unnoticed save the light almond sweetness. A full body depth but light and bright. It's just so well balanced it's hard to pick out any flavor standing out beyond the rest. Fruity, floral, nutty, sweet. The Royal Hawaiian lives up to its name. Truly a decadent drink for decorous people. Now before we move on, as if this episode isn't long enough, I would be remiss not to touch on a noteworthy royal riff. Perusing Smuggler's Cove by Martin Kate, I noticed a drink called the Humuhumu Nuku Nuku Apowa'a. It's actually the name of a fish native around the islands. I wonder if they ever fell for the old kava bait. This drink uses all the same exact ingredients as the Royal Hawaiian with the addition of Peshad's bitters. But the book claims it was created by Smuggler's Cove bartender Marcovado Dionysos. Now, here is the Humuhumu Nuku Nuku Apowa'a recipe. Three-quarter ounce lemon juice, three-quarter ounce pineapple juice, half ounce orgeat, two ounces gin, two dashes Peshad's bitter. With one cup of crushed ice, shake all ingredients in a shaker and open pour into a double rocks glass. Garnish with orchid and cherries. Here's my review. <clears throat> oh, oh, I'm sorry. I slipped into a diabetic coma for a minute. Whoa, this is a sweet drink. But then again, all the Smuggler's Cove recipes are usually super saccharinated. It's a pallid, sickly-looking yellow color, but tastes way brighter than it looks. Beyond that, I will say the bitters make it taste more like a true cocktail, but less tropical, almost like it would be more at home in a speakeasy than a tiki bar. The pineapple is subdued, as is the gin, by the higher sweet and bitter notes. It's not a bad drink, but very different considering the ingredients are the same. This is a perfect example of how messing with measurements can drastically alter the profile and texture. It's a fun drink, but not balanced at all. I wouldn't be disappointed if someone made it for me, but I would be if I paid for it at a tiki bar. I actually reached out to Martin Kate for any insight on the creation of this cocktail to no avail. I went into this prepared to bust balls for, rip, for uh, ripping off an old recipe, but I can see how this drink deserves its own name. Despite similar ingredients, it tastes totally different and is served differently. But there's obviously some influence here, right? It uses the same exact ingredients. I'll let you guys be the judge. The book also says we could sub aged rum for the gin, to make it a different version, but if you take a look at the recipe, supping rum pretty much just makes it a Hawaiian Mai Tai. Anyway, for a drink with no origin, this sure became a long-ass episode. So, I'll wrap it up. You know, pineapple gets a bad rap in cocktails because it's so easy. It's tropical, it tastes good with almost anything, and it's cheap and easy to get. But rather than venerate it for being the ultimate tropiki fruit, we denigrate it as being cliché. When used correctly, pineapple is truly an essential ingredient, and the Royal Hawaiian, a truly luxurious cocktail, is proof of that. It's funny how Hawaiian tiki began as an imitation of itself. But now I feel like new tiki is beginning to imitate Hawaii once again. So next time you're feeling a bit island fancy, throw on that floral resort shirt and some linen shorts, a Panama hat, put on some ukulele music, 
and fondle an eye under the palms to sit and enjoy life like a royal Hawaiian. Credits for this episode can be found at podtiki.com. Find us at podtiki.com for all past episodes and recipes, as well as on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. At pod underscore tiki and rum underscore poet on Instagram, and follow podtiki on YouTube for episodes of Inside the Mug. Looking for high-quality glass straws for your home bar or travel? Our code is still active at SurfsideSips.com. Simply enter PODTIKI, that's P-O-D-T-I-K-I, all caps, all one word, at checkout for 20% off your order. Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Tony. Thank you so much once again for listening to PODTIKI. Please spread the word. That's all for this episode. Until next time, aloha and keepy tiki.